welcome. I am here with Christian Habak and Nikita Miller to talk about all things tech and startups, leadership, marketing, product and sales, and of course, life. The three of us met so many years back when we were building a tool you may have heard of called Trello, where Christian led sales, Nikita was a product leader, and I led marketing. Trello was acquired by Atlassian in 2017, and we've all continued on our tech career journeys, but we've remained close as startup veterans tend to do. Nikita? Uh, we're excited to share our stories and stories of other tech leaders in operational roles. We'll highlight how people work together in different orgs, and also how our careers have progressed while also living rich lives lives outside of work. I'm Nikita Miller. I'm currently head of product at The Knot Worldwide, where we spend a lot of time thinking about how to help couples and families experience and celebrate life's biggest moments. Kristen? I am Kristen, and I'm currently the Chief Revenue Officer at Shogun, where we help e-commerce companies provide amazing experiences. And today, we're going to learn all about Stella Garber, former head of marketing for Trello and current... Uh, what are you doing now, Stella? What, what, what's, the, what's the gig? Tell us a little that, bit about yourself. That's the, that's the question. Well, let's see. I feel like I should start... My journey starts at the very beginning. I was born in the former Soviet Union. And my family came over to the US when I was little, which colors a lot of my life and choices and perspectives. When I was growing up, my dad, we sort of kind of lived the American dream. My dad was a doctor, he had to start from scratch um, when we moved over here. And he ended up having his own practice. And it was really amazing. And I thought I always wanted to be a doctor because that's what my dad did. And that's what we all immigrants, we tend to do. And so I, I was pre-med in college and I, you know, did all of the things until I witnessing a colonoscopy and I passed out cold <laughs> and I was like, nope, can't, no, thank can't, you. no, can't do it. Yeah. And it turned out actually, I had this great insight after taking some more courses that the thing about my dad's career that I wanted to emulate was more like the business owner entrepreneur part and less the bloody medicine people dying. Uh, well, hopefully not, but you get the idea. Less, so, less um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what was that like? It, it was something that you'd been thinking about your whole life. So what is what was that transition like? Well, it was really interesting because I've always been like a very bossy person. I'm making air quotes and like very, and you know, when I was young, bossy was not good. And then when I was older, it was called leadership. And I was like, <laughs> oh, leadership. Okay. And then in college, I was like starting all these clubs and I just, I, and then I took an entrepreneurship course with someone I'm still very close to, Troy Hennikoff, who's my professor. And I was like, whoa, entrepreneurship. That's that's what I'm doing. Like, that's my thing. And it was like a light bulb switched off in my head. And I think similar to Nikita, I had been doing, um, I had been doing like a consulting internship in when I switched from pre-med to consulting, because that's what, or pre-med to not pre-med, that's what you did was consulting or investment banking. And I, it was the you know, financial crisis. And I had a job offer from a top uh, consulting firm. And I was like, I am going to hate my life if I do this. I can't do it. Sorry, parents. And I turned it down and I decided to go into startups, which was it was 2009 when I graduated. It was not a cool or popular thing to do. Everyone thought I was just unemployed and couldn't get a job. 
So I, but I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, but I was 22 and I didn't have a great idea and I didn't have any experience. And so I decided to just try and join as early of a startup as I could. I found I found some guys who were building a cool fintech thing that I really believed in, and I joined them as like the first uh, non-founder, and we built that and raised some money and were acquired by Groupon in 2012, and it was a really fantastic experience, and I'm still super close with all of the people involved with that. And so after that, along the way, I started an events business. And then I did, I went to business school and I started a, um, what did I start? I started um, a tech company that was like a marketplace for freelance web and mobile developers mm-hmm. to find projects. And that was really fun and exciting. We did the um, new venture challenge at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, which is like kind of a big deal. We won and the business was like doing well. But it wasn't growing as fast as I wanted it to grow. And, you know, venture capital was not really that was readily available back in those days. And so I ended up selling the business and I had the opportunity to join Trello because Michael Pryor, who was the CEO of Trello, he had been a customer of my first tech company, Fee Fighters. And his face was on our homepage, which was hilarious when I got to meet him because I was like, I've been staring at your face for a long time. Not an awkward thing to say at all to (laughs) a potential boss. And so Michael was like, come run marketing at Trello. And I was like, oh, I love Trello. I was obsessed. I was using Trello to run my startup and plan my wedding. And the only thing was that Trello was based in New York and I didn't want to go to New York. I really love being in Chicago and I really believe that tech companies should be, should and can be built anywhere. And um, so he was like, okay, let's, we'll give it a shot. We'll be remote and, you know, let's, let's do it. And I guess the rest is history. So I, I joined Trello as the first marketer. I worked with Kristen and Nikita and we went through and built the thing and got acquired by Atlassian and I continued to run marketing for four more years, four and a half more years, my goodness. And I just left a few months ago and okay, I'm almost done. <laughs> I have questions. Question. I'm sorry. First we have to understand what it is okay. that Stella's doing. <laughs> right. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. That was the initial question, right? And so along the way, I also started investing in early stage companies and doing some advising work. And so at this point, I've invested in a little over 30 companies and have been um, advising some venture firms. And that's uh, what I'm doing now. And the future, who knows? We'll see. Probably be an entrepreneur again. Who knows? That's awesome. I love that. It's so funny because, you know, I think like a lot of our backgrounds are are really similar and then they divert in these interesting places because my parents were were entrepreneurs too. They they had their own business. They were salespeople. And I remember as a kid being like, I never want to be an entrepreneur. I would get like, <laughs> I would get like these, the J. Crew catalog and they w- I would pick out like a woman in a suit and I'd be like, I want to do whatever that lady is doing. Oh, like, wow. I just want to work in an office <laughs> and have a suit on. And just like, because I just saw the grind that my parents had to go through and like the lack of like safety net around it. And I was yeah. like, so it's funny because I saw the exact same thing. I was like, nope, thanks anyway. <laughs> but, but it's interesting. So I mean, I'm curious from an entrepreneurial journey for you. You know, what's it like to go from the mindset of like founder to to small company and to big company? Like, what do you, 
you know, what do you feel like are the biggest shifts in those, those changes there? Well, I think it comes down to your mindset. And for me, I am a doer and an innovator and a problem solver. I'm very solution oriented. And so I think when you're a founder, it's you sort of do everything. And then as you move into a more of a defined role at a startup, you know, you, your scope sort of becomes more narrow and then at a big company becomes even more narrow. And for me, I've always really enjoyed, it's always been about working with amazing people who are smart and have a lot of integrity. And it's also been about learning as much as you can. So like when the opportunity to continue at Atlassian came, I was really excited because I don't think that I would ever work at a big company. Like if I, if it wasn't through an acquisition, I, I'm just not a big company person, but it was a, such an amazing opportunity for me to learn and to get that experience, which I think makes me a much richer individual. Yeah. 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 I agree. I think there is something to, to sing the journey through the small company and the big company lens, because it does really round it out, I think, for you. So on an entrepreneur journey, right, you're kind of like a mile wide and an an inch deep. So what brought you to marketing as Mm. the thing you wanted to go maybe, I don't know, an inch wide and a mile deep? Is that the equivalent uh, reverse of that? But like, what, what brought you to that being kind of the place you ended up gravitating towards? Well, it's an interesting thing because I never really planned to be a marketer. It was just something that I have my undergraduate degrees in psychology. And when you're the first person to join a startup, you do everything that the the, the founders can't. And for me, it was like the, the two founders I was working with were engineers. So I was like, I'm going to do all the non-engineering stuff. And I was doing customer service and I was writing the website copy and doing PR and like everything, partnerships. And I just realized that I was good at marketing and marketing was the, the craft of taking the real technical stuff and making it into a thing that people understand and people are excited about. And specifically within the payments industry, that was really exciting because our target audience was was small business owners and helping small business owners. That's where I was like, oh, marketing. I guess this is a thing. I guess, you know, I guess that's what I am. I'm a marketer. I think my first title at the startup was the most generic thing. It was like project manager or something like that. So I guess along the way, it just sort of, it sort of chose me. I didn't really choose it. And I think that's actually, it's, it helps to start in that way. And maybe that's a little bit of wisdom that I'll impart because I think when you do have this narrow idea of what you're supposed to do, it can, you know, you don't have as wealth of, uh, you're not as like open-minded about opportunities Mm -hmm. that come along potentially. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about um, that a little bit as well. I think our our paths are similar in a lot of ways, given our backgrounds and this idea that once at some point you have everything planned so perfectly. And I think that's how I at least attempted to. And then at some point when I also joined startups, there's a way in which like you can't, right? The whole join a startup is in some ways like a lottery and you don't know how that's going to end. So so you actually have to get a whole new set of skills, at least for me, that were like, well, how, what do you do in a world where there's a lot of uncertainty and you don't necessarily know what the next best thing is going to be. How how have you, I guess, responded to that kind of uncertainty in I startup think life? 
when you are at a startup, one of my favorite things, and I think if you ask anyone who's worked on my team, they'll tell you, I always say that the only constant in life is change. And that's something that I really, uh, you know, you can't really ever get too comfortable. And if you're working in and around startups for a long time, you have to get very comfortable with ambiguity that just comes with the territory. And so if you're a person who is not comfortable with ambiguity, then probably doing early stage stuff is not for you and that's fine. But I really thrive in those types of environments because the possibilities are endless and that's what is really exciting to me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The two of you have MBAs, right? I am, of course, the least educated one of the group. I am MBA-less. It's actually always been something I, it, it was, I, I think I'm okay now with it, but it was actually a big point of, you know, I questioned a lot in my early career if I should go get my MBA. So this is more of a question just that I would like the answer to, which is like, hey, ladies, MBA, yes or no? Should you go get it? Like, what's, what's your take on that? How much time do you have? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nikita, how much of your MBA comes from your your parents pressuring you to get an MBA or the or the family? <laughs> Not much actually. I think that was that pressure was all all me. It's just something I think there was there there might have been some expectation that I would get another degree of some kind. Initially it was going to law school. That didn't happen. I think after that happened they kind of just just didn't question it too much. They're like, she'll find her way. And for me, the MBA is just something that was always in my mind as a thing that I thought I needed some kind of training. And that's how I was going to get it. Not clear exactly specifically what I thought that training was. And we can talk about to what degree I actually got (laughs) the training another time. But I think at some point in my early 20s, I looked around and I saw that a lot of the people that I admired and thought had the kind of career paths that I wanted or aspired to, they all had MBAs. And I remember talking to a bunch of my mentors at the time, and many of them were thought that I didn't. They're like, nope, you're fine. You're doing great, especially in tech. You don't really need it. But I couldn't shake the feeling that one, most of them were men, cared for them deeply, but I think their paths were a little different in in hindsight. And, And I think that I couldn't shake the fact that for me as a woman, as a black woman, trying with the aspirations that I had, I just felt like I needed more credentials. And so, yeah, I was like, nope, I'm going to do it, even if financially it doesn't seem to make that much sense because the cost of business school is absurd. It just, for me, it seemed like a necessary checkbox in a lot of ways for what I wanted to do. For me, I think there were, there's sort of three reasons. Number one, my parents really wanted me to have a, a, an MBA or something. Russian people are obsessed with education. My brother has a PhD. So it wasn't really, it was always a thing. And number two, similar to Nikita, I was looking around at all of the people that I admired and all of them told me not to do it. In <laughs> retrospect, it's funny. I hadn't thought about it, but they all were white we're, dudes. We're, now that yeah. <laughs> Um, but I was like, well, you still did it. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think thirdly for me, when I, I, I think there's some path in the future where I'm going to be teaching, I think. And everyone told me that if I wanted to teach, like I really want to teach entrepreneurship someday, I have to have an MBA. So 
I don't know if that'll change in the future or maybe if you get successful enough, but I do think academia is a bit snobbish when it comes to that. But for me also, like (laughs) when I was doing my MBA, I was also running a startup. And so I didn't pay attention in my classes. I was also working full time. Yeah. (laughs) I got it while we were at Trello. (laughs) So yeah. If I could go back in time, I would pay so much more attention. Oh, and I had like a ridiculous scholarship for like women entrepreneurs. So it wasn't a financial burden for me. So I think, you know, there were some things that made the, for me personally, the choice easier, but I don't think you need it to be successful at all. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I I think for a long time, I felt like I had to do it and I wanted to do like oh, I need to go to like Wharton or something and like do it serious. But I had a kid and it just like wasn't, and you look back now, especially like anything where you have to like, actually you can't do it while doing something else. And it's like, you know, it's like very elitist. Like it like slams the door behind a lot of people who can't yeah. just go and like be unemployed for two years and take out yeah. a ton of students. Anyway, so I, I've, and I, 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 yeah, I, I guess, felt very lacking not having yeah. it personally. I had, I had a similar feeling. And I think by the time I decided to get it, I did an executive MBA program. And part of the reason was I'd already been, I'd al- I was working for many years at that point. And so the idea of leaving the work that I wanted to do to go yeah. to school to then come out and do very similar work to the work that I was doing just didn't make sense for me. <laughs> yeah. So it was really important that I, and also the cost of an MBA is absurd. Uh-huh. I will repeat. We'll talk about <laughs> education in another episode. <laughs> yes, I think we're setting it up. But yeah, I also just felt like I, I was not going to forego my career to go yeah, to yeah. take that time off for the MBA. And for me, there was like a natural break. So it was like my company got acquired. I had some liquidity and I knew I was going to start another thing. I was 24, I think. Right. Like 25, maybe. I don't even remember. So it was like a natural thing to do. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, so no, you don't need an MBA. You're okay. good. <laughs> you. You're your CRO. I, I think, think you're okay. I think yeah, you can I let it go. I think you're good. Maybe maybe I'll retire and get my MBA. That's what our podcast is. We're just teaching it out to the world for free. Um, <laughs> this is just me asking. I just want to ask Stella all the questions. <laughs> I need to know if I need an MBA. My next question is, Stella, what are mistakes people do when they hire their first MBA? Maybe we, this could be a whole other episode. Maybe we do... Yeah, like do a deep dive on it. I think the biggest thing probably is that companies don't really know what marketing is, or Mm -hmm. they have some idea of what marketing is. And um, a lot of times, they don't know whether to hire a really senior person or whether to hire a more junior person. And there's a big difference because, you know, when you hire a more senior person, especially someone who hasn't been in a startup environment before, they're used to operating in a scenario where there's a lot of resources and yeah. startups are by nature resource constrained. So I think I think that companies that are successful with their VP of marketing hires, they spend a lot of time thinking about what exactly success looks like for that hire, how that hire will, you know, what kind of resources that they'll have. I think it's very common that a, a VP of marketing comes in and they expect to have headcount or, you know, campaign budgets. And, you know, that's not something that's been planned or um, they have access to. So they're sort of like not set up for success to begin with. So, but there's, there's a lot of different things and it's a, it's a tough hire yeah, for a lot of is. companies. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think all those initial VPs are are really challenging. Um, so yeah, you're you're doing something that's super interesting to me. That it feels like a real black box. I feel like it doesn't get talked about very much, which is investing and, and doing angel investing. And again, talk about like another thing where it feels like a little bit like anyone who's figured it out, they kind of close the door behind them and don't explain what's really going on. So, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit of how you got into doing angel investing and how you're thinking about it right now. And yeah, just, just take us on that journey as part of your kind of next career step here. Well, I think it's, once you've sort of gone through the whole startup life cycle one time, whether it's as an operator, a founder, an investor, you sort of see how things play out and who makes money and who doesn't and how things work. And so then like for me, after my, the first startup that I did, I was like, I want to be involved in, in, you know, I want to be involved in as many as possible, (laughs) given my, whatever, my time constraints and capital constraints. And so when I finally had um, some liquidity, I, I started investing. And so how did that work? My, my very first angel investment was actually my old boss at, Fee Fighters, who was starting a company and was telling me about it in a coffee shop. And I was like, when you raise a funding round, I would like to invest. And I had no business investing at that point. Like, we didn't have a, a ton of capital, but I just knew because I'd worked so closely with Sean that he was like one of the smartest people I'd ever met and that whatever he did would be uh, successful. And I really liked the idea. And so that was like my first angel check and that's done really well. And so along the way, I think there is this, the way that angel investing works is it's, and and the reason why it's still a bunch of white dudes doing it is that it's all like networking. And so like I've, part of it is networking. Part of it is like letting people know that you're interested that you, you know, are writing checks, what types of checks are you writing? Where can you add value? In the last few years, I think there's been this big movement for operators to also become angels. Mm -hmm. And so startups can get a lot of value having on their cap table, a, a diverse set of angels with different experiences and different, you know, backgrounds and networks to pull from from hiring. So I think that's a, that's a great trend. And, you know, I think there's, there are things that you do. One of the nice things about being an angel and why I didn't go into institutional investing, although I've done a bit of VC, like as an intern and some programs, when you are an institutional investor, you're very thesis driven and Mm. you're, you have your constraints about your check sizes and the stage that you invest in. And you don't get to, as an angel, you can do whatever you want because- Like I just invested in a baby food company. I don't know anything about baby food. Yeah. I love the founder. I think she's wonderful. I think what she's doing is great. And generally I invest in boring B2B companies, but it's really nice to have the ability to support the types of businesses you want to see in the world and also the types of people that you want to yeah. see in the world. It's not surprising that a lot of the investing I do is is in women and yeah. I don't even try. <laughs> yeah. So like I, I I don't set out to invest in women. It just right. so happens that that that's what's going on. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about it and they were like, well, like, yeah, what's your thesis going to be? What are you going to invest in? I was like, I don't, and they were like, are you going to focus on e-com? Are you going to focus on developer? I was like, I don't, I just kind of been like, that looks cool. Here's some money. (laughs) Well, you, I think you sort of develop, like I definitely have a thesis and being able to do whatever I want is like the fourth leg of my thesis, but the first three actually make sense. It's like one of them is about investing in the future of work because I'm very passionate about, you know, distributed work and I always have been. And another one is on product led growth companies because that's my, also my background. So, you know, but at the same time, I think it, it, if you have some bandwidth to be opportunistic, then you can also learn a lot. Like I think that's another thing is you can invest and and learn about different industries that you don't have access to. So that's actually the baby food investment is for me, like a learning opportunity because it's Mm -hmm. consumer, it's super early stage. It's like food and consumable. Like, I don't know anything about that. It's going to be a fun journey. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you said something there that I think is um, worth us spending a little bit more time on, kind of the future of work. And you you talked about, you know, that being something that was passionate for you. I know you're in Chicago, not right now. You're in Miami right now, but normally you're in Chicago. And one of the things that I know you were a huge advocate for during our time at Trello was, was remote work. So yeah, I mean, I would love to hear your thoughts kind of on, you know, the world has shifted, right? Like I remember when we were doing it at, at Trello, it was still really, you know, rare. Obviously COVID has changed things in a way I didn't necessarily see coming, but yeah, would love to hear kind of what's gotten you from, to be an advocate for remote work pre-COVID and what do you think it's going to look like? What do you hope it's going to look like, I guess, you know, as the world starts to sort of come back? Well, I've always had this belief that if you're working in technology, like why does it matter where you're working? Yeah. And maybe that's because I was, I've always been in Chicago and the Chicago tech uh, community is, is thriving, but it's also quite small. Mm-hmm. And I, I've just always thought that if you're a talented outgoing person and you're sitting in front of your computer all day, like why does it matter? And even in the earliest of startup days, when we were sort of co-located, we would still work from home a lot of time on the days that we wanted to focus. And so, I don't know, it just always felt to me like kind of silly that people, it it just seemed like some sort of relic of the past of like that people needed to sit in an office together to work. And so that's in, in that's something that we've obviously all experienced. And the thing right now that's sort of tough and will change is that people can't really see each other, but you know, in the next, however many months, offsites are going to start happening and people will be able to meet and hang out and develop the bonds and relationships. And that I think uh, the ideal scenario with remote work is that, or with distributed work is that you come together and you have really meaningful in-person interactions and then you go home and you execute and you can live your life. And I'm just, I think people some expect that they have their social lives at work and you know, that they're whatever. And I just maybe because I was always in the startup world, there was no structure for that kind of stuff. It was like, you do your work, and then you have your life. And um, so even though I'm really close with everyone I've worked with in the startup world, I also have a really great set of friends that have no idea what I do or how I do it or, you know, and I think that's very valuable. So (laughs) yeah, yeah. Yeah, some of that I think it it varies so much and it depends on how well I think 
teams and companies are of making that initial connection you're talking about? Because I'm definitely one of those, like, I think that that human connection and that bond, like spending that meaningful time is what makes, you know, distributed work potentially so powerful. Because I think without that, I think a lot of what people have experienced the past couple of years is not being able to do that. And so you kind of open your laptop one day and then you close it one day. And that's how you kind of start and end an experience as opposed to a lot of our experience at Trello where, you know, Trello togethers or, you know, quarterly offsites were such a meaningful part of how we, we interacted with each other. And I think that without that time, it is, it is really hard to kind of form those working relationships. But I've always thought that it's funny. I've always thought that like, if I was in an office with people, they would annoy me and I would annoy them. So I feel like that short, you sort of have this honeymoon where you hang out with yeah. people and you see the best of them. and Vacation you know, together. <laughs> yeah, it's like having a, a fun, and, and then you go off and you don't need to hate them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to be annoyed by them. No, I think that's, I think that's right though. You know, it's like, it's like visiting your family versus living with them, right? It's like, I want to come and I want to have a really lovely Thanksgiving dinner and then I want to go away. But have you always, have you both always felt that way? I just have like some of my best memories and some of my closest relationships are because I was spending so much time (laughs) at work in offices on like hard projects. And I think for me, like my, that as part of my early twenties experience has shaped so much Mm. of Mm -hmm. my approach to work. I mean, Mm. I don't, I don't know, Saul, what you, how you've always felt. I, I, I certainly like I enjoyed my time in the office and like I did so so you were fully remote with Trello but I went in once a week to New York and I thought like once a week was lovely like it was just enough where it was like it was totally unproductive day right it was like making fun of the catering and like you know like screwing around and seeing everybody it was great it was lovely and then like I went and did my work I think what always for as long as I can remember annoyed me was that it was nine to five, five days a week, regardless of like the weather or if I had a dentist appointment or it just felt like I was there just to be there. And sometimes when things were like, there was a big project or something going on, like I didn't mind the camaraderie of being all together. I just never understood like the, the binary-ness of it, of like you're either there or you're not there. And that never made sense to me. I think like, if I think back at my office experiences, like I'm an extreme extrovert. And I get a lot of energy from being around people, which means that when I'm around other people in an office physically, like I don't get any work done. Yeah. And maybe part of the work is hanging out with people, but then it's like it creates this whole other work that you have to, because the work has to get done, right? And I think that's what's so, what I've always thought is so powerful about remote work and like having a family is that, you know, you don't need to burn the candle on both ends, so to speak, in terms of doing this, I don't say fake work at the office, but putting in the social time, et cetera. And, and what's interesting is that I sort of thought that before I had kids. And then once I had kids, I was like, Oh, this is, (laughs) this is even more. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. And I just, I think that I've always been really annoyed at how little gets done in an office. And I'll say like when I was doing my consulting internship, it was like people would come in and see who could get in the earliest because everyone was competing. And then, and then it was like, Oh, it's eight 45 time to go to Starbucks. 
but everybody goes at the same time so that everyone stands in line and they can like waste as much time as possible. And then you get upstairs and then it's almost lunchtime and then everyone takes an hour for lunch. But then you can't leave until six o'clock because that's when the partner, you know, this is the biggest waste of time. Like, what are people actually doing here? Like, get me out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of that is, yeah, it really is about what kind of culture, right, the company has. I had a similar experience when I was in banking and I thought, oh, I can't do this because, you just expect me to show up early for no good reason. And you expect me to stay late and wait to order a car and food instead of being at home and having a home cooked meal. And this is just not the life I want to lead. So I think that on that extreme, I just thought, yeah, no, that's not for me. I do think that some tech companies or software companies have done it a pretty good job of like, at least are starting to where people just understand the flexibility. Yeah. Right. Like it's yeah. that, that would be great. I think Chris, I always thought Kristen's situation was ideal. I, I would have, and I was traveling like before the pandemic, I was traveling quite a bit to yeah. hang out and, and to do offsites and it was getting to be kind of a lot to be yeah. completely honest. So yeah, I think Kristen had the best. It was a pretty good setup. I will say this though, for what it's worth, I would rather be unemployed than go back to five days in an office. Like if that, if the, if the world was like, these are the two options. Everyone has to be in an office five days a week or you have to just figure out with your savings how you're going to live. I'd be like, you I would become an entrepreneur. I, I, <laughs> I would become something. I would be like, thank you, next. So that's where I'm at on that. All right, so Stella, we haven't covered this part and we should because we covered it with Nikita and I. You are a mom. Uh, you have a family. Tell us, tell us, you know, we've kind of told you our, our how we balance those things from ambition and, and everything, family. Like what's what's your take on that? Well, I'll start by saying that my son, who is almost five, he doesn't actually think that I work. He thinks my job is to be his mom. So whenever I'm like, oh, mom has to work, he's like confused about it. It was when he, the first time he said that, it was so funny because like I never thought of it that way. Like I don't think so. Anyways, so I have a son who's almost five. His name is Lev. And I have a 14-month-old daughter named Maya. And I have always thought this is another hot and spicy take from me but that has shaped my career, I have never thought that your personal life should hinder your ambition or how successful you are. And so a lot of the choices that I've made have been in service of that. So number one, like when I went to business school, at that point, I probably could have gone to Harvard or Stanford, but or whatever. But you know, I was in a serious relationship, and I didn't want to do long distance. I thought that sucked. I barely wanted to do an MBA. So, you know, when the University of Chicago was right in my backyard and is one of the top schools, it was, and I could do it and still live with my husband. I was like, done, you know, and in a similar way, like with, with all of the career choices that I've made, it's been about, you know, part of the appeal for Trello was the fact that when I joined, I was the only executive team member without kids. And I knew and I love that because I knew I wanted to have a family. So I guess I think this is going to get a lot easier for other people. And it definitely depends on what industry you go into. Like when I was pre-med, that was a thing that sort of haunted me was like, how am I going to be able to have this rich family life if I have to do the kind of like residency and you know, training that, that doctors have to go through. And I don't know how they do it, but 
in tech, there's a lot of flexibility, which I've always appreciated. So yeah, that's, that's, I think that's a hot take, but I can say I'm, I'm N equals one of someone who's always guided by that life philosophy. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. I think, you know, one of, I, I remember joining the, you were already there. I joined, I think a month or two after you. And I remember I'd never been on an exec team where everybody had kids and they were all kind of right around the same age. And like, you know, you romanticize the past, but like, honestly, it was kind of magical because like everybody was at the exact same point. Like a lot of our kids were within like a year or two of age of each other. And it was just like, everybody knew exactly what everybody was going through. We'd be like, sleep training. They'd be like, yeah. And we were just, it was just like, and I think that is part of how we all just bonded so well because, um, we all, I think had a really similar philosophy like that too. And so, yeah, some of it is, is culture for sure too. And like, that was just like the right mix of people at the right time. And it was like a very, but I remember we'd be like, Stella, don't have kids. Like all of us would be like, Stella's like, kids are like, I won't tell you a story. You're not going to want to have kids when we're done with this story. It's true. And culture is so important, but I think, and to Michael's credit, I mean, when I remember when I joined, he said he wanted half of the, his exec team to be female. And I think that, I mean, that's obviously not, well, I, you know, and, and you and Liz were moms and I wanted to be a mom and it shaped a lot of the, the culture that it was so family, I should say family friendly, but it was like respectful of Respect, people's yeah. personal was, lives and choices. Yeah. I was thinking it was, uh, I mean, another, another thing that was really special about it, and maybe we'll do a whole segment one day on why, why so many good things came out of, you know, how yeah. Trello was, was set up in terms of distributed work and culture, but that whole team were also just really, and what you're saying, like they were really empathetic. Like I, I, I remember being very comfortable talking to my manager, Justin at the time and being like, I don't want to talk to anyone because it is too early, but also I am tired all the time and I am struggling. So I need you to know and it was just such an easy conversation. And I know because a lot of my friends, girlfriends have very different experiences that there was there was definitely something about the culture that kind of facilitated a lot of that openness to to living like really rich lives outside yeah. of work. Yeah. It's something, I mean, I'm sure you guys do too. It's something I, I take with me as I try to build yes. out new teams and <laughs> And influence, you know, I know Stella, you're doing advising and stuff like that. And it's like, even with companies I advise, like, it's a lot of what I talk about, like, be accommodating, embrace a diverse, you know, a diverse range of people and experiences, because it makes for such a rich environment. I think this is a good example of it for sure. Okay, well... Ooh, please, hot, that's, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, no, no. You're getting to it. You're getting to our question. Okay, we, we've, we've come to the final bonus round question, I think, that we've asked. So, Estella, you, you've had two of these. So, hopefully, you've, you've been thinking this up, right? Which is, if you could give yourself your previous younger self advice, what would that be? You know, I, I should have a good answer. But I feel like I would tell myself to just chill and, like, trust the journey and and like keep being focused on on like the things that are important the people with integrity the doing things that you're passionate about and that the things would work out but I know that I say that and part of my personality is not being chill so I don't know (laughs) if I would listen to myself 
So that would be, I, I would say like when you have, I've always been opinionated, strong-minded, and I feel like 10 years ago, if I could just say, keep on, keep on on, Stella. You're, you're doing, you're making the good choices. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think you both are like, you, you see that in yourself, both of yourselves, you kind of said like, I think it's similar, which is like, Hey, I am who I am. And like, it's totally okay. Yeah. Awesome. That was a great conversation. Thanks for sharing all of that. It was so great to learn about you and also your family and how you got, got the entrepreneurship bug so early and also how you're using that now as you advise, advise other founders and their journeys. I think that's really awesome. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. Next time, we'll be learning all about product-led growth. It's a term that everyone loves to talk about right now, but very few people have actually done. So we're going to dig a little bit more into what product-led growth really means to us and, and how we approach it from a sales, marketing, and product perspective. So look forward to seeing you next time.